This is an EWTN Newslink. I'm Teresa Tamio from Catholic Connection. President Donald Trump and Vatican Secretary of State Pietro Perlini challenging world leaders to protect unborn human life. Speaking at the UN yesterday, the president stated, we believe every human child born and unborn is a sacred gift from God. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi launching a formal impeachment inquiry against the president. Trump reportedly ordering advisors to freeze military aid for Ukraine days before speaking with Ukraine's new president about investigating his political rival. President Trump says Pelosi's impeachment efforts could actually be a positive for him. He's authorized the release of a transcript of that phone call with Ukraine's president, during which he supposedly pushed Ukraine's leader for help investigating Democrat Joe Biden and his son. For more news with a Catholic perspective, visit EWTNnews.com. I'm Teresa Tamio, and Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders starts now. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. On the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. This program, unique in all of broadcasting in that it's a program on a Catholic network for non-Catholics. Now, if that is you and you have questions about the Catholic faith, by golly, we're here to answer those questions. Do give us a call. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, you'll want to dial the U.S. country code and then uh, 205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for our response and then text us your first name and your brief question. Message and data rates may apply. Again, the phone number 833-288-EWTN. We also uh, have a fabulous uh, 24-hour-a-day email address. How about that? I, I guess all email addresses are indeed 24 hours. So forget about that last part. Anyway, the uh, email address, ctc at ctc@ewtn.com. ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. We have Ryan Penny as our excellent phone screener. Rich Jesse, wow, handling social media today. He'll be glad to pass on any questions that you may want to pose via YouTube or Facebook Live. We're uh, streaming there right now. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom Price, how are you today? I'm great. Glad to be back with you, my friend. I appreciate it. I'm glad to have you back. It's, in fact, I'm really glad to have you back. Well, we, delighted. We I appreciate that. Delighted to be in uh, Minnesota uh, last week uh, on behalf of Real Presence Radio uh, for their fall live drive and uh, got to meet an awful lot of wonderful people in the cities that we broadcast from, a number of cities, including uh, Duluth. Always enjoy going to Duluth. But we were fogged in in Duluth. Couldn't, couldn't move. Had to drive out of Duluth instead of flying out of Duluth. Uh, there's a lot of that going around. You <laughs> have some experience with that, <laughs> some I believe. Some experience with that in Duluth, yeah. Yeah, but they're the best people in the world, I'm convinced. So, glad to be back with you. And we're going to lead off here with an email as we're getting some of these calls screened. Here's one from Margaret who says, I'm going to start RCIA. Could you please answer how people believe Catholics re-offer or sacrifice Jesus at the Mass? Because I hear the priests say, your sacrifice, your sacrifice and mine. I'm confused. Thank and, you. So, oh, I love this question. I really good, appreciate it. So, so the, the, the Mass is a sacrifice, and it is a distinct oblation, meaning it, each Mass is not one sacrifice. The Mass on Monday is a different sacrifice from the sacrifice on Tuesday. That's why Monday the priest might say the Mass for one particular intention. Uh Tuesday he says a Mass for a different intention. Mm. Different sacrificial uh, efficacy, if you will, uh, on on successive days. Um, So it it is absolutely in its own right a sacrifice. How? How is it a sacrifice? In what manner? And how is that related to Calvary, Christ's death on the cross? Mm-hmm. And does that somehow devalue the uniqueness of Christ's sacrifice in Calvary? That's the question we're going to answer. Okay. So let's talk about Calvary. On Calvary, Christ, the high priest um, of in the order of Melchizedek, offered his own life. He was the priest. He was also the victim. 
He was the priest who offered the victim of him, himself on the altar of sacrifice, which was the cross, in reparation for the sins of the world. And that sacrifice on Calvary was absolutely sufficient for the salvation of every human being on the planet. Okay. It, it, universal in scope. Now, it doesn't mean every human being is saved, because they have to actually apply that sacrifice to their lives through contrition and faith, be incorporated into Christ, but he made sufficient satisfaction for the sins of the entire world. Period. End of paragraph. Done. Never to be killed again. Jesus never immolated again, physically killed, after Calvary. But he instituted the Mass to be the perpetual memorial of the sacrifice of Calvary. And if you attend carefully to the words of the Eucharistic prayer, you'll hear the priest say, this is the memorial. Mm -hmm. the, The language of memorial, this is the memorial of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. How, is, how does it memorialize Calvary? Well, when we have two elements, bread and wine, consecrated, become for us the true body and blood of Christ. But why not just have one element? Why not just have bread? Why not just have wine? The reason we have two elements, bread and wine, is to demonstrate the separation of Christ's body from his blood. He is shown forth before us in the elements in a state of victimhood. Bread over here, wine over there. Body over here, blood over there. When your body and your blood are separated, you're dead. Christ, present on the altar of sacrifice, is not actually dead. He's alive. It's the risen Christ in heaven who's made present on the altar. He's not killed. He's not immolated. He's not destroyed by the act of consecration. But he is represented as being dead. Okay. The representational element of the Mass shows forth the element of body and blood in a state of separation or victimhood. So the immolation that takes place on the altar Mm -hmm. is representative and memorial only. Not not his bodily presence. That's real. He's truly present on the altar. But his death is not actually physically caused on the altar. Jesus is not killed He's not killed or immolated again on the altar. The death of Christ happens only once. The death of Christ is memorialized on the altar through the double consecration. But the presence of Christ, the substantial body and blood of Christ, are really there. All right. Now, how is he offered to God the Father? Through the ministerial priest acting in the person of Christ, he offers the body and blood of Christ present on the altar in reparation for the sins of the world. And it is in this rite, in the rite of the Mass, that we come to participate in the fruits of the sacrifice of Calvary. Remember Calvary made a sufficient satisfaction for the whole world? Mm -hmm. Well, how do you actually lay hold of that and make it your own? Apply it to yourself, principally, through the holy sacrifice of the Mass. That is... Pope Pius XII said, the most efficacious means of obtaining sanctity, laying hold of the fruits of Calvary through the offering of Christ's body and blood, the very same priest and victim who died on Calvary is therefore on the altar of sacrifice in the Mass. Lay hold of him in the Mass. Mm -hmm. That's how we participate in the fruits of Calvary. All right. Uh, Margaret, thanks for checking us out on Facebook. We do appreciate your excellent question. Uh, Phones are on fire today, but we have one line open right now, 833 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. It's the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. EWTN, teaching the truth. Thank you so very much, first of all, for this ministry. You have no idea what a blessing you and EWTN have been in my life and for my life, and I just thank you for that. Well, first off, I'd like to say God bless you for your ministry, and uh, my wife prayed daily for EWTN. It's, uh, it's a game changer in our world. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Bishop Robert Barron. When you say, well, my ego is the center of my life, my freedom. Okay, it sounds great. What I can envision, what I can desire in the immediacy of the moment. I mean, what a dull prospect. But to say that God's purposes are now my purposes. Well, that opens up, as as Paul says in Ephesians, you know, this power already at work in me that can do infinitely more than I can ask or imagine. Or the Lord saying to Peter, you know, when you were a young man, you tied your own belt and went where you wanted to go. That's what young people do. But don't get stuck there because the Lord says, well, you're an old man. 
Someone else will tie you up and take you where you don't want to go. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. You don't, don't read that as something terrible. That's liberating. That's wonderful. Some greater power will tie you up and take you maybe where you never imagined you'd go. When you get beyond that little narrow space of your own ego and you're opened up now into the great space, that's what happens when Jesus becomes Lord. Now you're living. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. One of the great programs we have on uh, EWTN Radio every weekend is Dr. Doctor, where we've got three excellent doctors all lined up, ready to give you answers to uh, medical questions that you may have been thinking about, discussions of uh, practical and current medical topics with a focus, uh, as everything we do here on EWTN, a focus on the dignity of the human person. Do check it out Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern right here on EWTN Radio. I might uh, note that that is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association. How about that? If you're ready now, let's get to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Kaylin in Crawfordsville, Indiana, listening on the EWTN app. Hey, Kaylin, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. Hello, Dr. Anders. Um, before I get to my question very quickly, I just wanted to say um, this past Monday was a year that my wife and I had entered the church and my daughter was baptized the same day, and our older son came into the church that uh, vigil. Wow. So, and it cannot be overstated how uh, instrumental called the communion was to our conversion. So I am very, very thankful to you two gentlemen and what you do here and to what you do absolutely brings people closer to Christ and to his church. So thank you. God bless you both. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you so uh, much. Kaylin, you just made our day. Thank you so much. How can we help you today? So a question I have, and I've heard you talk, Dr. Anders, about this topic before, but I wanted to get your specific take and a little more clarity from you on predestination specifically, what the differences are between Calvin's view, the double predestination, Luther's um, passivity of the will, in contrast to Catholicism's view of predestination. Okay, thanks. That's yeah, nice. absolutely. I appreciate the question. And I've got, you, you've actually raised a couple of questions. Right? They're related, but they're distinct theological subjects. One of them is the meaning uh, and extent of predestination. Another one has to do with the nature of human freedom, the will, and salvation. So all of these are related concepts. Let's take them one at a time. So the Catholic Church teaches, along with sacred scripture, that God does, in fact, predestinate. It's a biblical word. We find it all the way all through the Gospel, all through the New Testament. Um, sometimes it uses the word election, sometimes predestined, uh, the elect, the chosen, that, that kind of language is frequently found in the Bible. The uh, first election all right, that really stands out in sacred scripture, of course, is the election of Abraham. God picked one guy, picked one guy out of the entire world to father uh, the Hebrew people uh, to be God's chosen people. And he didn't pick the Assyrians, he didn't pick the Egyptians, he didn't pick the Romans or the Persians. He picked the Hebrews to be the bearers of his of his uh, covenant, right? And the covenant of circumcision with Abraham, later the covenant of the law with Moses, uh, so that Israel would be God's chosen possession. And they would uh, minister to the world as priests, a kingdom of priests, and display uh, God's righteousness and his will to the nations and be, be for him an elect people. The promise to Abraham was, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Mm. Uh, you know, Israel, my chosen one. right? Not, not Assyria, my chosen one. Not Babylon, my Israel, my chosen one. And uh, David was elect, out of all the people of Israel, uh, to be the bearer of that uh, monarchical promise. And he would later become the ancestor, of course, of the Messiah. And so the, the ultimate election is the election of Christ, Christ is God, fully God, human, divine nature, but assuming a human nature. Truly God, truly man. And so we can speak of Christ the man, and he was a man, he's fully human being, has a rational soul and all the rest of it, has physical parentage, descent, uh, genealogical descent from David. Christ the man is God's ultimate highest election. But he chose the man, Jesus Christ, 
right, to be the Messiah and the Savior of the world. He didn't choose somebody else. He chose that particular humanity on that day, in that place, in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Well, actually, from the dawn of time. He also okay. elected the Blessed Virgin Mary. He didn't just he didn't just throw an open-ended invitation. Hey, who would like to sign up to be the mother of God? No, he actually decreed that it would be that virgin of from Nazareth, right? Uh-huh. Um, uh, Bethlehem. That virgin, nobody else, from the dawn of time, he picked her. And that's why St. Paul can speak about in the fullness of time. Christ was born of a woman, born under the law. So uh, we see ele- we see election just it's just visible in front of us, operating in the history of Israel and the election of the Messiah. Then he elects those who are to be members of Christ, the Church, and and he has marked them out in advance, and, and ultimately those who are to be saved. Right? God knows in advance. He has he foreknows all of those who will be in the company of. God's not sitting around waiting to see who's going to get saved. Right. He knows the end of the story now, because he's timeless. He sees the whole thing start to finish in one big permanent instant. Mm-hmm. It's unfolding for us. It's not unfolding for him. He knows who the elect are now. He knows who the saved are now. We don't know, but he knows. And and it it is a mystery of divine grace. Like why why didn't God create a world in which everybody would just automatically be saved? Some people will be lost. Some people be lost. And he could have made it otherwise. He could have just confirmed everybody in grace from the moment of their conception. He didn't. He didn't. And I I didn't decide to be one of the people privileged to be born uh, in such a way that I could come into the Christian faith. I didn't pick that. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the grace of my circumstances that the gospel came to me from outside of myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't choose that. Mm-hmm. How, how gracious is that? Not, nothing I can do. I, You and I have the grace of faith. I didn't decide. I mean, I, it's a gift. I, I can't deserve the gift of faith. I can't deserve, Nothing I can do can compel God to give me faith or the grace of first justification. All that is Catholic teaching. Here, Here's the kicker. Once that grace of justification comes to me in baptism, mm-hmm. I do get to participate. My will is not overridden. Grace cooperates, comes along and cooperates with my will so that I retain genuine agency in my life. And so my moral acts are not devoid of meaning. I am not just an automaton operating like a robot with a key in my back that you wind up. I really am a participant in the story of my own redemption. But I participate in such a way that God's providence is not violated. It also remains for me a possibility that I stop cooperating, that I disobey God, and that I lose grace, and that I be lost. If I am to persevere in the faith and make it to the end of the show... That also cannot proceed simply from my free will. This is Catholic doctrine. I cannot, des- I cannot earn the gift of perseverance. To persevere in the faith is as much a gift as to receive the grace at the beginning. At the beginning. But along the way, I really do get to participate. My, my free cooperation, my free agency is, is a not insignificant part of staying on the path. So if I persevere, it's from God. But if I fall away, it's my fault. That's the Catholic teaching. What do the Calvinists teach, and how is it different? First of all, the Calvinists teach that Christ did not die for the whole world. Catholics say says that he did. Calvinists say he didn't die for the whole world. He only died for the elect. Only died for the elect. That's the Calvinist position. Limited atonement. Then they say that... Uh, Grace cannot be resisted. Can't be resisted. We say it can be resisted. See, I can I can cooperate or not cooperate. The Calvinists say no. If you get grace, you, you're stuck. You, nothing you you got it. You just stuck with it. You can't you can't fail to cooperate. It cannot be resisted. And then the Calvinists teach that you can't fall away. That if you truly receive the saving grace of God, 
you will necessarily persevere. That's why, now this is very downstream from Calvin, mm-hmm. that's why three, 400 years later, you get evangelicals that think, hey, if I just pray to receive Christ, I'm safe. You know, if I just, if I have a conversion experience, I'm safe. I'll, you know, I'll make it to the end of the line. That's, that's, that's a caricature of Calvin's position, mm-hmm. but it's derived from Calvin's position. That once saved, always saved attitude, that ultimately derives, you know, in a weakened form, attenuated form from Calvin. Whereas the Catholics say, nobody, you've got to participate. You, you can't presume on salvation. You've got to persevere with active participation, even though that comes from the grace of God. So major differences? Again, Catholics think Christ died for everybody. Calvinists think he only died for the elect. Catholics think you can resist the grace of God. Calvinists think you cannot resist the grace of God. Uh, Catholics think that you will not necessarily persevere just because you've begun to have faith, so you can't presume on your salvation. Uh, Calvinists say you will necessarily persevere. And then finally, I should say, this is another key difference. Catholics, because we don't know the end of the story yet, right? I have not died yet, I don't know whether I'll persevere. I can't possibly know that. I can't know the future. So I don't have I don't have a kind of mathematical certainty that I will be in heaven. I have a hope that I'll be in heaven. I have a confidence that I'll be in heaven. But I don't have a kind of mathematical certainty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the Calvinists teach, and this is in the West, their Westminster uh, Confessions, the Calvinists teach that the elect can have, and I quote, an infallible certainty of their own salvation, which Catholics regard that as just is just unabashed hubris, mm-hmm. right? That's why you will meet Calvinists and Protestants that say, hey, I know for sure I'm going to go to heaven if I die. Poppycock. That's what Catholics say. You know, no, you don't, and it's presumptuous to say so, and it, it will it could potentially lead you into ruin if you get careless about your moral life. Yeah. So those, the, are, those are the major differences. And by the way, that is a theological term, poppycock. Uh, you bet you believe it. All right. Kalen, thank you so much for your call. Thanks also for your kind words. We really appreciate that. It's called a communion here on EWTN. That opens up a line for you now, 833-288-EWTN. One line open right now, 833-288-3986. Here is Tammy in Verona, Virginia, listening on Sirius XM 130. She's a first-time caller. Hey, Tammy, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon. I thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate your ministry. Thank you. Um, I want to ask my question and then hang up so I can hear you better. My question is regarding Freemasonry. And I know that um, this is seriously at odds with Catholic with the Catholic Church. I am uh, I am close to someone who is a Mason and is very aloof about talking about faith. Um, and I'm wondering, as far as Masonry being a secret society, how much does an individual Mason really know about um, how at odds they are with Catholic teaching and with a true Christian faith? Um, to what degree does the nature of this secrecy really oppose God because they say they believe in a higher power and an afterlife, Got et cetera? Got you. I'm with you. Thanks, Tammy. So, um, I am not a Mason, nor the son of a Mason, thanks be to God. But my understanding is, your average Mason on the street has very little concept of what the higher-ups in his organization actually teach and believe. Uh, And even less knowledge about the extent to which his Masonry conflicts with the Catholic Church. It is not the secrecy of the organization per se that's the big problem. It is rather and you began to allude to this in your question, the indifferentism, the indifferentism of their doctrine of God. It is it is in Masonic principle that you must, in fact, believe in God to be a Mason, but, like Eisenhower said, he didn't quite care which one. <laughs> you remember that? Pretty vague. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that that's explicit in their teaching. Mm-hmm. you got to believe in God, doesn't matter which one. Well, it matters quite a lot which one. It matters quite a lot which one. Uh, and and the Catholic Church teaches that it matters quite a lot. And the indifferentism of, of masonry is specifically and consciously opposed to the particularism of the Catholic faith. 
And so organizationally and historically, the Masonic Lodge has actively opposed Catholic influence in civil society. So it has made itself a conscious enemy of the Catholic faith. Now, I'm not saying that every individual Mason is a conscious enemy of the Catholic faith. I did not say that. I don't think that, and that's not true. A lot of Masons are perfectly fine people. They're just trying to, you know, do civic work and have buddies and hang out and have a nice time, right? I'm talking about the organization in its principles, structure, and history, not its individual members. But the organization in its principles, structure, and history is consciously, actively anti-Catholic, and teaches an explicitly anti-Catholic doctrine of indifferentism. Mm. Okay, and there you go. Well, I do appreciate your call, Tammy. Uh, thank you so much for it. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Our phone number eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. You can also text the letters EWTN to five five zero zero zero. Would love to hear from you. We're also uh, streaming live on Facebook right now. And we're streaming on YouTube. So if you want to pose a question, you can go to the comments box and just uh, pop in a question right there. In a moment here, we're going to be talking with Thomas in Louisville. He has a very interesting uh, question regarding the end times. We'll also be talking with uh, Jose in Brownsville, Texas, uh, wanting to know uh, a, a little about uh, the whole celebration of Christmas. Does it have pagan origins? This is one of those questions that does pop up from time to time. Couple lines open for you as well, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. The Wednesday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. On September 27th, St. Mark the Evangelist Music Ministry will host the Hall Pipe Organ Competition Winners Concert. This concert will feature the winners of the 2019 Hall Pipe Organ Competition. They will be performing on St. Mark's beautiful Buzzard Organ. The concert is free. For more information, call 210-494-1604. The Guadalupe Radio Network is grateful for the financial support of Dr. David Zagin and Dental Care of San Antonio, who help make Catholic Radio possible. Dental Care of San Antonio is a general and family practice and is committed to making your trips to the dentist enjoyable and ensuring your smile is the first thing you want people to see. You can reach Deacon David Zagin and Associates at 496-2533 for an appointment to find out more about state-of-the-art dentistry in San Antonio. 496-2533. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. How many times have you heard it said that the church has been weak and ineffective? Well, G.K. Chesterton says the church has been so powerful and effective that it colored even the things it had not hoped to influence and changed its enemies as well as its friends. It affects everything it touches. It inspires a life-changing love from its friends and a self-destructive hatred from its enemies. Its enemies will do everything to destroy it, and they end up destroying everything, except the church. The Catholic Church, says Chesterton, has endured for 2,000 years, and the world within the church has been more lucid, more level-headed, more reasonable in its hopes, more healthy in its instincts, more humorous and cheerful in the face of fate and death than all the world outside. Want more than a minute? Chesterton.org Call to Communion here on EWTN. Glad you could join us. There is one line open right now. Uh, You can grab it by calling 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here is Thomas in Louisville, Kentucky. Hey there, Thomas. What's on your mind today? Yeah. How y'all doing? Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for um, answering my my call. Uh, what I wanted to ask you was, uh, I've heard of a, a lot of different Protestant preachers that talk about the end times. They say that there has to be a Jewish leader and a uh, Arab leader to sign a seven-year peace treaty before the seven years of chastisement and tribulation can start. And I was wondering, wondering if that was true. Yeah, thanks. And also, on the, oh, there was something else. Came in the ramp. 
she has a uh, quick question. Is, uh, is there a rapture? Is that true or false, too? Uh, yeah, all, all those are related. So the the theory of the rapture and and theories about the end times and the final tribulation, all of that, all those are kind of connected. And the positions that you have articulated come from a tradition in Protestantism called dispensationalism. So all this end times fanfare and trying to find names and dates and this Middle Eastern leader and that pastry and all that and second coming and rapture and all that stuff. That all comes from Protestant dispensationalism. That movement was born in the 19th century in England, particularly with a man named John Nelson Darby. He made it up. You'll note that none of what you just said is mentioned in the Bible. The Bible never talks about a rapture of the church and a secret coming of Christ, and it doesn't speak about Jewish and Arab leaders signing peace treaties. N- not, none of that's in Scripture. Not in the book of Re- Revelation, nowhere else. Uh, and Darby made it all up, and it became very popular with fundamentalists. Uh, and it's particularly in, in the United States, Dallas Theological Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, some other institutions began to promote that in the United States. But for the first, say, 1,900 years of the existence of Christianity on the planet, nobody had any such idea of any sort of thing, which ought to be proof enough that it ain't taught in the Bible <laughs> and it ain't found in sacred tradition. Yeah. Um, so... Jesus, when he talks about the end times, uh, like in Matthew 24, for example, speaks about the the destruction of Jerusalem being the sign of the beginning of the end times. That happened in 70 A.D. So we've been in the end times for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the history of interpretation of the book of Revelation, which is definitely the most obscure text in the New Testament, has has generally been that the book of Revelation is a picture of the the kind of events that will happen in to the Christian church in every age. So this beast from the earth and beast from the sea, for example, symbolize tyrannical religious and political power. Well, we've had no shortage of tyrannical <laughs> religious and political power in the last 2,000 years. You got that right. Right. And uh, and so the, uh, the apocalyptic end-timed texts of the Bible are of perennial value. They're of, they're of deep relevance to the life of the Christian faithful, and it's why it's so easy for interpreters to look at their present experiences and go, oh, 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 this guy over here, he looks like the Antichrist guy. <laughs> because we've been doing that for 2,000 years. You, you go back and study the 14th century, and people were going, oh, 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 here's the Antichrist, here's the Antichrist. Yes, and then you're going to find another one in the 15th century. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Sure. And St. John, in his epistle, says, many Antichrists have come. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be a final one. By definition, there's got to be a last one. Sure. So here's what I... When is the end times going to happen? When is the end of the world going to happen? Safe answer. We're closer now than we've ever been. Yep. Definitely. Thank you so much for your call, uh, Thomas. We do appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN. Here's a question now from Nathan, checking us out today on YouTube. Hey, Nathan. He says, I have been a follower of Christ for years, but I have a severe disability to the point where I am now wheelchair-bound. How would the church let me join? Oh, with great jubilation and gratitude, the Absolutely. church would let you join. So sure. here's what I would do if I were your, in your situation. So I, I, I am presuming from the language of your question that it is not easy for you to get out of your house. You can't maybe make it to a Catholic church. So I would call the parish closest to you. I would ask to speak to the priest. If you can't get to the priest, just talk to the secretary and say... I would like to become a Catholic. I am an invalid. I cannot move. Would a priest or a deacon 
be able to come to my home or, or someone designated by the priest to provide the necessary instruction. And then I don't know what sacraments you not, might need if you need to be baptized or simply confirmed. And, and then uh, ask that you could be received into the church from your home in your wheelchair or from your sickbed or wherever it might be. And, uh, and uh, a priest could come to you, baptize you, confirm you. Um, uh, if you are already baptized, hear your confession, admit you to Holy Communion, and you would be a communing member of the Catholic faithful f- from your wheelchair, from your bedroom, from wherever you are. That's perfectly acceptable. Priests do this. They do it all the time. I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of times I know priests that have brought people into the church on their deathbeds. Yeah. In the hospital. Sure. It happens all the time. Sure. Do uh, appreciate uh, your checking in with us today, Nathan. And uh, be sure to do what uh, Dr. Dandrews uh, just mentioned. Call the priest. Call the church. And uh, let's, let's get the ball rolling there. Call to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We have a couple lines open for you right now. Here now is Jose in Brownsville, Texas, checking us out today on YouTube. Hello, Jose. What's on your mind today? Hi, guys. Uh, well, my question is, uh, I've been talking to people from all over the denominations, and an often argument they make is that us Catholics have, get, have get, you know, adopted uh, beliefs and traditions from pagan uh, people, you know, such as Christmas, and in Mexico, you know, the Spaniards, they, they adopted uh, pagan rituals and ideas. And uh, I'm not sure how I can answer back, you know, what, what, what can I say in defense of Christmas, for example. Yeah, sure, thanks. Appreciate it. So uh, Christmas specifically, um, let's talk about Christmas. Whose birth is celebrated at Christmas? Jesus. Yes, exactly. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. Last time I checked, pagans don't do that. (laughs) We're not celebrating the birth of Hercules, or Jupiter, or Athena, or Vishnu, or Confucius, or the Buddha. We're celebrating the birth of Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the God-Man. Doesn't sound very pagan to me. Doesn't sound very pagan to me. So I, I, you're going to have to make a better case for me that Christmas is a pagan celebration that had better address the fact that we're worshiping Jesus Christ in the Feast of Christmas. It's got to be kind of a problem for the claim that it's a pagan holiday. Now, I think I know where they're going. All right, I think I know where they're going. I think what they're trying to try to argue is that some of the fanfare and maybe some of the dating of Christmas Mm -hmm. may have pagan precedent. Now, that's arguable, actually. I mean, you can make the case that that's not true, but just for sake of argument, let's accept that, okay, so maybe they picked a date, or maybe, you know, the Germans brought in Christmas trees or whatever, and that may have some pagan origin, okay? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I'm just for sake of argument. So? Yeah. So? Are you telling me, are you telling me that if, if if pagans did something somewhere in the world, I can't do it too? Is that what you're telling me? All right. What if a pagan gave us the cure for cancer? Oh, I can't take that. It's from pagans. <laughs> Why? Cures cancer. All right. Pagans invented some pretty cool columns, architecture, Greek columns, Doric, Ionic, Dorian columns, all that good stuff. I've seen a lot of Baptist church that have Greek columns up in the front, you know. Can I not use a column because it was in, in, in my church because it was invented by a pagan? Really? Pythagoras, pretty good guy, Pythagoras. Thought up the Pythagorean theorem, gave us geometry, Euclid, you know. A lot of, lot of Protestant churches, a lot of Catholic churches use Euclidean geometry, Right in their in the principles of architecture that they use to design their buildings, but a pagan thought that up. Should I not use it? Why? Good, Why? good question. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could even say that uh, about a recipe in a in a cookbook. Just because somebody came up with this fabulous recipe for, you know, chicken uh, tikka masala. 
Yeah, but well, there you go. Thought up by a pagan. Mmm, it's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Called to communion here on EWTN. Jose, we hope that helps you out. And uh, why don't we go to this email here from Sam in Oregon. Sam says, I am a Protestant seminary student. Recently, you addressed a question about penal substitution. I do take issue with the idea that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus and, and appreciate hearing you discuss Isaiah. If I heard you right, Catholics don't believe Jesus was imputed for our sins. No double imputation, which I recognize is a very Protestant teaching. Well, how then do you interpret 2 Corinthians 5.21? How was Jesus, quote, made sin? Was it only the human form having the appearance of sinful flesh? I'm I, think- I, I, that's enough. I stopped there. Because I, I, I understand the you question, and I don't want to confuse anybody by the elaborations. Got it. First of all, well, thanks be to God, you do not believe that God poured out his own wrath on his son as if Christ himself were personally guilty. Thank you for not believing that. Thank you for disagreeing with John Calvin. Thank you for agreeing with the Catholic Church on that position. Thank you. How do I understand 2 Corinthians 5? Christ, you knew no sin, became sin for us. Well, you will note many translations, and not just Catholic ones, render the verse this way. He became for us a sin offering. He became for us a sin offering. Now, a sin offering is an established ritual form that we found that we find in the Old Testament. You know the old, the Book of Leviticus describe and Numbers and Deuteronomy all describe several distinct sacrificial rites that the Israelites were to perform. One of them was the sin offering. Christ's death took the form of a sin offering. Okay then. All right. It was also a sacrifice of atonement. Yes, that's what we think. It's no threat to the Catholic doctrine of the atonement. Uh, in fact, undergirds the Catholic doctrine of the atonement. Because, see, the sin offering, the uh, the offering of atonement, the Thanksgiving offering, all these Le- Levitical sacrifices, in none of them were the sins of believers imputed to an irrational animal. And in no case was the animal possessed of a righteousness imputed to the believer. That's not how they functioned. Rather... The worshiper gave up something of value. You know, we don't have goats and bulls and turtle doves and all this kind of business today. If God had instituted the Mosaic Covenant in the modern era, we'd probably be be sacrificing Xboxes. (laughs) Right? Or something like that. We'd take some token of our culture, some some cultural form that possessed value to us, and we would say, I'm going to give this over to God. And I would and I would hand it over to a Levitical priest, and then he would smash it and burn it on an altar, deprive me of its use, and that mm. would be the way that I demonstrated my repentance. That's that's how the death of Christ functions. The worshiper, in this case Christ, gives up something of value, namely his own human life, in reparation for the sins of the world. It's not a penal substitution. Okay. Sam, thank you so much for your email. We do appreciate hearing from you today here on Call to Communion. Well, we're going to get back to the phones in just a couple of seconds here. I want to tell you something uh, wonderful uh, that EWTN offers you. It's our other network, our other radio network, that is EWTN Radio Classics. If you've never checked it out, um, I would urge you to do so. Some of the programs that we air on Radio Classics, which is a 24-hour teaching and devotionals channel, what about this? A great series from Father Andrew Apostoli. What about Life is Worth Living from Venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen? Or The Wisdom of Father Groeschel? Or The Fathers of Mercy Hour? Mother Angelica Live Classics? Uh, the Holy Rosary for Vocations, which we offer every day. Uh, along with the Rosary for Children, which you, we offer every day. Food for the Journey with Sister Ann Shields. I'm just looking at the list here. You know, the list goes on and on and on. These are wonderful programs that you can check out 24 hours a day on EWTN Radio Classics. Check it out on Alexa. Check it out by going to EWTNRadio.net, EWTNRadio.net, or you could check it out on the EWTN app. It is all there just for you. 24 hours a day on EWTN Radio Classics. Here now is Matt in Ypsilanti, Michigan, listening to us on Ave Maria Radio. He's a first-time caller. Hey, Matt, what's on your mind today? 
Uh, well, first, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I just uh, I had a question. My wife and I, well, actually, my family and I were on vacation with um, some friends, and my wife's friend um, and I were kind of discussing religion and science. Well, <clears throat> she she was talking about how science is interpreted by the researcher and it's biased and then it kind of leaked over into religion while well, we were talking about Catholicism and, and I asked her, I said, well, do you believe in God? And she said yes and no. And, and so basically she was saying it's hard to for her to believe in God because um, the, it's been, basically religion has been interpreted in so many ways. Catholicism, there's different books that are out. So it was kind of hard for me to answer her, and I was kind of embarrassed that I didn't have an answer because she was kind of asking, how can I prove that it's not biased? It's been translated from Latin, and how do we know that things haven't been lost uh, in translation, basically, is what she was saying. I guess that it was just hard for me to answer that question, so I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, sure. So so I, I can I can answer the questions that she raised about reliability of the Bible and, and transmission down through the centuries and so forth, and that's that's fairly simple, right? So... The, the documentary evidence on the New Testament is, is, is wider, more extensive than any other ancient text. And there's a great book on the topic called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? by F.F. F. Bruce, who's actually a Protestant writer, but he's, it's the text that I'm most familiar with that gets into this question. Brant Petrie, who's a Catholic biblical scholar, has written also a lot on the, the actual integrity and transmission of the biblical text. So I mean, that, that's, there's scholarship on that. It's not hard to come by. And there's a science of lower text, it's called lower textual criticism that compares manuscripts, tries to come up with the best text and so forth. And and what you find is, you know, you can pick out, you know, fragments of manuscripts that we might find in ancient Persia, some in Egypt, maybe there's one up in Ireland, and you find another one over in France. And they've all different traditions and like different parts of the world, different languages. You compare them and then actually look at where have there been differences and changes in what we find is that any kind of change of language or whatever, letters missing here, they are so minor that the substance of the thing is not in any way affected uh, that would that would impinge on the integrity of the Christian faith. So that's that's a that's an easy answer, right? Um, but it's also, I think, not really the issue we've got to go to with your friend. I'm not gonna I'm not going to make the question of the truth of the Christian faith or its desirability, right, hinge on the question of a manuscript transmission. Because, look, I might get a copy of Plato's Republic or Aristotle's Ethics or the Epic of Gilgamesh from ancient Sumer, and I might have a good translation or a good transmission or an ancient version of the text. It doesn't mean I should believe it. It doesn't mean I should base my life on it. So I think you, you did well to start with the question of God, particularly as somebody who's interested in science. And, and and let's get our head wrapped around what we mean by God. And the Catholic Church teaches, gives a lot of definitions of God. The one I like the most, that I find the most useful, is God is the first principle. Primo principio, first principle. A principle is that from which things proceed. You think about it in geometry, we have principles that are called axioms. And the proofs of geometry proceed from the axioms. That's one manner of procession, the, the logical procession of demonstration. We can also think about uh, procession by way of physical causation, right? Um, maybe the way maybe the way an an, uh, an artisan produces an artifact. That's another kind of procession, right? First, it's in the mind of the artisan, then he produces a product and builds it according to certain specifications. We can also look at procession by a kind of way of natural generation, the way a son might proceed from a father. You get the point. Lots of different ways to conceive of that. God is the first principle. Now, I don't mean, first you have an idea of God, guy with a beard, sitting on a throne, carrying a scepter, and I'm saying that guy's the first principle. No, 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 no. You misunderstand. All the beard on the throne stuff is putting way too much idea into the concept. I'm saying that the the word God means, for my purposes right now, nothing more and nothing less than the first principle. And you say to me, well, that doesn't tell me much about God. It just tells me that whatever is the the rational principle from which things come, that's all I can know about God. Bingo, you've got it. 
<laughs> Actually, the Catholic Church teaches as a dogma the unknowability of God in his own essence or nature. God's being in nature is a kind of mystery. I mean, this is a cardinal part of the Catholic tradition. All right? So we can know we know God from his effects, not in himself, not directly, and mostly we know him as a principle. How do I know God as a principle? Well, I'm rational. You're rational. Your friend is rational, trying to be rational, understand science, religion, the world, put things together, try to make sense of it. That's rationality. Right? Animals don't do that. My dog does not wonder about the meaning of things. It's just give me food. Right? No, no philosophy from dogs. <laughs> we are rational. We're trying to figure stuff out. Rationality proceeds. Right? It functions looking for causes and intelligibility, looking for some principle that makes sense of disparate information, trying to organize it in some way, understand how it functions, how it fits together, where it came from, how it proceeds. That's how rationality works. It works that way when I try to understand my dog. It works that way when I try to understand a physical particle. It works that way when I try to understand reality as a whole. If you think that rationality itself is reliable, and if you don't, why are we having this conversation? Yeah. But if you think that reality, it's, if you think that reason itself is reliable, that rationality is reliable, that we can actually do this, that we can discern causes and intelligibility in the nature of things, and that we can apply that process to the whole show, to everything, to reality as such, then you can't turn around and say reality is unintelligible because it doesn't proceed from a principle. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. You can either say, yes, reality is intelligible and understandable, and I can attain it in some measure, even if imperfectly, by applying my rational faculties. In which case, if intelligible, it's intelligible in virtue of something. Mm-hmm. Or you can just say reality is absurd and I can't know it. But you can't have it both ways. If you admit rationality, you are admitting de facto that there is a principle of things. That's what we mean by the concept of God. How then ought we to relate to it, to that first principle? And now we bring in the question of religion. Because religion, in the Catholic understanding, simply is the virtue of right relationship to the first principle. One of the things the Catholic Church teaches about our relationship to the first principle is it ought to be rational. It shouldn't be based on faith alone. It ought to be rational. And sin in the Catholic universe, the way Catholics understand it, is the teaching of Thomas Aquinas, is irrationality in the moral life. And superstition, the sin of superstition, is irrationality in our relationship to the first principle. So chew on all of that a little bit, and that's where I want to start with somebody who's really kind of agnostic on the question of religion versus mm-hmm. no religion. Mm-hmm. I bet they haven't thought of it in these terms. And I got some good books on the subject if you ever want to go there with me. There you go. Matt, thanks so much for your call. Let's go quickly to Joseph in Portland, Oregon, listening on Alexa today. Hey, Joseph, what's on your mind? We've just got a few seconds. What's What's your question? Okay, one is, does a Catholic sin by marrying a non-Catholic like Pentecostal, Baptist, etc.? Okay, depends, depends. So a Catholic may marry a Protestant, but needs the permission of his bishop and must have a valid wedding in front of a Catholic priest or deacon. So it can be done validly, but you have to do it in accordance with the law of the church. Okay. And there it is, Joseph. Uh, Thank you so much for your call. We couldn't get to uh, Jeff in Edmonton, Edmond, Oklahoma. Uh, He might want to hang on, and perhaps we can hold him over for Father Mitch coming up next hour on Open Line. Or Maureen in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're going to try to hold both those calls over. If not, folks, if you can't hang around for uh, Father Mitch, then do check us out uh, tomorrow or any day of your choice. Call us back. Let us know that uh, we left you hanging at the altar there, and we'll get you on the air as uh, quickly as we can. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Tom Bryce, thank you. Good to be back with you, my friend. That's great to have you back. 
Don't forget, we do the program uh, Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern here on EWTN with an encore that same evening at 11 p.m. Eastern. We also bring you the best of uh, best of Call to Communion on Sundays at 2 p.m. Eastern. On behalf of Charles, Ryan, and Rich, I'm Tom Price here with Dr. David Andrews. See you tomorrow on Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless. Hey, y'all, this is Father Mitch Pack. Open Line Wednesday is next on EWTN Radio. Here is today's quote from Mother Angelica's Perpetual Calendar. The seraphim are learning things about God now that they never knew before. So how are you going to understand God? Ponder divine truths with the knowledge that you will never completely understand them. Mother Spiral Bound Perpetual Calendar features an inspirational message for each day of the year. It's available from the EWTN Religious Catalog at EWTNRC.com. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Hi, I'm Christina, and I'd like to invite you to the traditional Latin Mass at St. Pius X. The traditional Latin Mass is a beautiful combination of contemplative prayer and children learning how to participate. We have missiles for you to borrow that contain the prayers of the Mass in Latin and English or Spanish. After Mass, join us under the shade of the trees to socialize and let the children play. I hope to see you this Sunday at 1.30 at St. Pius X Traditional Latin Mass off Harry Wurzbach near 410. Thank you. May God bless you. Do you have confidence that your OBGYN or therapist provides the highest quality care? Are you looking for an OBGYN or therapist whose practice is in line with church teaching? Dignity Women's Center offers women's health care and professional counseling. You can learn more about Dr. Stephen and Amber Pilkington at 210-593-4392 or online at DignityWomenCenter.com. Dignity Women's Center, focused on the dignity of women, centered on the love of Christ. How does the GRN choose the programming that it airs? The Guadalupe Radio Network has always had the specific goal and purpose to assist each person who tunes into our stations to have an authentic and real encounter with Jesus Christ. So, we choose programming that helps provide a Catholic context to the world around us, timely advice on relationships and parenting, as well as provide solid Catholic answers to difficult questions. Additionally, through our devotional broadcasts of the Holy Mass, Divine Mercy Chaplet, and Rosary, our programming enables you to grow deeper in your relationship with our Savior. As a result, the content you hear on the GRN guides you to a more active sacramental life and a richer understanding of the Catholic faith where you can fully encounter the living God even in this life. That is why we are Radio for Your Soul. Will you help us spread the word? This is Len Oswald, President of the GRN, with your GRN Family Minute. Hi, everybody. I'm Father Ed Bresnahan from St. Andrews in Clifton, and this is Two Minutes to Virtue. In our gospel today, Jesus has a very perplexing situation. Uh, a lot of times we'll read this story of the dishonest steward where um, he has to prepare an account for himself. And instead of just immediately coming clean with everything, he goes and makes all these side deals. And the Lord says, do this. But he says it in the perspective of doing it when it comes to righteousness and goodness instead of um, instead of all of the side dealings. He's not encouraging us to do shady dealings. I think at the end of the day, what the Lord is challenging us to do is to avoid the vice of greed. And greed is the inordinate attachment to wealth. So how often in your life do you find yourself, whether you have money or not, but whether you find yourself attached to it? The simple test to avoid it is to practice the virtue of generosity. And if you want to test where your generosity level is, the simple answer is just to consider the next time father makes a makes a, a pitch in his homily for money or the next time somebody on the street asks you for money. Hey, whether you have the money or not or whether you want to give the money or not, what's your reaction? Because if your reaction is a prayerful, well, maybe we should consider it. Ah, we don't really have the money. It's not appropriate right now. Or here, I'd love to donate. And those things are fine. 
But the real question is, do we find a bitterness in our heart? And how often does that happen where our mind, our body, our, our very self almost reacts to what it is that somebody is asking? How could you ask me of that? And that really belies the idea that maybe there's something underneath that gives us this attachment to the stuff. Our Lord challenges us today to practice generosity, right? Not just in the volume that we give, but in the, uh, in, in the gift of our heart. And how do we give generously to God for the one, or how do we generously give to God who has given everything to us? Two Minutes to Virtue is a production of the Catholic Diocese of Arlington, Virginia. For more information, visit their website at arlingtondiocese.org. Serving God's Holy, Catholic, and Apostolic Church. This is KJMA 89.7 FM, Floresville, San Antonio. Also online at grnonline.com. Your destination for Catholic Radio.